Hello, writers, researchers, fact finders, historians, and archivists. I'm Grant Faulkner, Executive Director of NaNoWriMo, and I'm here with my co-host, Brooke Warner. And Brooke, one of the questions I've thought a lot about, particularly in this past year of various crises and challenges, is why writing matters. Why write a novel when people are sick and can't get medical treatment, or when they've lost their jobs, or when there is racial injustice in the world? And I think it's a common thing for artists to question the value of their art in times of crisis, which which is a good thing because I think we all need to answer that question as writers. Why does writing matter? Yeah, that's a tough wall a lot of writers run up against. And I agree, it's very important to check our impulse to measure our writing against such steep standards, you know? Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about this and I, you know, love making lists of, of reasons it's important to write. But one of the things I've focused on lately is just the simple act of noticing, uh, which can take so many different forms. I often think of writing as opening the doors to noticing the things around us, just our environment, you know, whether it's flowers or clouds or the smell of smokestacks or the sounds of trains. And then writing helps us notice ourselves and our own thoughts and emotions and where we stand in this world, whether personally or politically or professionally or psychologically. And then it helps us notice other people in the world and who we are in relation to them. And then I think it also helps us notice other stories and to pay attention to them, explore them and write about them. And I'm thinking about especially this latter point of noticing because our guest Stacey Lee's new YA novel, Luck of the Titanic, was inspired by a little known historical fact that there were eight Chinese passengers aboard the Titanic and six survived. And Stacy discovered this fact, and then she created a story around it to help readers understand that time period and to really recast history for some people. So writing allows us to notice stories that might otherwise go unnoticed, but they're important to know because if your history education was anything like mine, there were a lot of stories left out. So I'm curious, Brooke, can you think of other stories or books where the act of noticing uncovered something crucial that might have otherwise been overlooked and gone unknown? I mean, I'm just thinking about every day in every way, because my default is always to go through the personal story, you know, the lens of personal story. And it's surprising how much we uncover about our own understanding of ourselves, of course, once we start writing about our lives. Uh, and this goes back to your opening lines about people feeling guilt or survival guilt, I guess is what that is. If you feel like your work doesn't matter when others are suffering, because that has come up a lot in this past year of the pandemic. Uh, but in my experience, writing is an act of survival in and of itself. And, you know, putting words on the page for so many people is staking claim to their personhood and the truth of their experience. So I totally get survival guilt. And I do think it's a good thing for folks to examine their privilege from the simple standpoint that doing so can make you a better person and a better writer. But there can also be a way in which that kind of hand wringing or self judgment or guilt really just has the impact of recentering the person who's doing the hand wringing, if you know what I mean. It's like they're making it about themselves. And I don't think that's necessarily conscious. Uh, I just I, I've experienced that in some of these circles over the past year plus. But I also understand that it takes real time for some writers to be okay in their hearts, minds, and bodies with writing about what matters to them. And I think owning that is part of the journey of becoming a writer. And I'm guessing that that is what happened with Stacey when she uncovered this unknown thing in her new novel. 
Yeah, and that unknown thing, um, well, part of it is uh, the larger context of the history of the period, um, which includes the Chinese Exclusion Act, which I have to admit I didn't know about until recently, shamefully enough, and, you know, speaking about history education that left out a lot of crucial gaps. Uh, but for those people who also don't know, the Chinese Exclusion Act was a United States federal law signed by President Chester A. Arthur in 1882, and it prohibited all immigration of Chinese laborers. And it was the first and remains the only law to have been implemented to prevent all members of a specific ethnic or national group from immigrating to the United States. And the law stayed in effect until 1943, and it obviously has particular relevance today in a number of ways. So the story of the eight Chinese passengers on the Titanic sparks Stacy's story, which forms itself around the Chinese Exclusion Act, because one of the characters is a stowaway who is trying to get to the U.S. to become an acrobat in the Ringling Brothers uh, circus. And it's interesting to me how she unearths this historical story, including the history of the Titanic, to explore topics of identity, class, and family. And I admittedly, I haven't read much historical fiction, but this really makes the case for why it's necessary to me, you know, so that we can not just learn history as we might in a history book, but so that we can also imagine it more keenly through the characters and the storyline of the novel. So since we're talking about why write, Brooke, which you you provided so many great reasons in such a powerful way. I'm going to revisit it and um, just wanted to see if you wanted to say anything more about that. Yeah. I mean, this is so central to my ethos as a coach and as a publisher. And so I think a lot about it. I do think that why right gets down to our very right to exist in the first place. I do believe that writing is a birthright. And speaking of uncovering, I discovered a lot uh, when I was writing Write On Sisters, which is my last book, which wasn't really unearthing things that weren't known, but bringing to light a lot of what I already knew and then putting it all together in one place. It was kind of like, whoa, you know, I was building out this whole book about encouraging women to write. And it did give me a chance to understand in my bones why it's so meaningful that we write. Men writers, yes, for centuries, men's stories have been the thing that our culture has rallied around. And so that's not to take away from men's right to write their stories or men's birthright to write and express. But what I saw in Write on Sisters is that women's stories had been written out of history you know, that women's stories had been devalued. And we recently spoke with Sue Monk Kidd on the podcast about how women's stories were just not included in ancient times. We actually don't even know if Jesus might have had a wife because the women's accounts didn't survive. And pretty recently, uh, all these stories of pioneer women were uncovered, which is really cool. And in these accounts, you read stories of loss and survival and the daily women's work of cooking and mending and tending to and we wouldn't have had those stories because they weren't the ones that got captured in the history books or in any kind of book for that matter. And so writing is this impulse that, of course, we have had literally since cavemen and cavewoman times to capture how we live, what we think, what we do. And so for me, that's just like an extension of our very personhood. And I do feel that in my heart. It's like a very sacred thing. And since women have been silenced for so long and so long been written out of these stories, I think it makes sense that there's a lot of emotion involved for women in the telling uh, because there's historical silencing being undone with every single word that we write. 
So, you know, I do bristle a little bit when people start to measure their right to write uh, against other people's right to survive, because I think it's comparing apples and oranges and one person's suffering should never, ever negate your right to tell or unearth your story. Yeah. Wonderful thoughts, Brooke, and powerfully said. I'm picking up on your use of the word sacred, which I actually use a lot when I think about writing, because I do think that writing in the end serves a higher calling. And I think it's too often diminished or taken for granted by writers themselves, unfortunately, and ironically, because I think because we happen to be doubting and self-doubting creatures, perhaps by nature. So I love your statement that writing has to do with our very existence, that it's that important. And I think it was Toni Morrison who said, don't pin me down on this if it's the exact words, but she said in times of crisis, write. Um, so let's mull that over during this short break, and we'll be right back with Stacy Lee to hear about Luck of the Titanic. Welcome back, everybody. I'm thrilled to introduce our special guest today, Stacey Lee, who is an award-winning author of historical and contemporary young adult fiction, including Under a Painted Sky and Outrun the Moon, which was a winner of the 2017 Penn Center Award for Young Adult Fiction and the Asian Pacific American Librarians Association YA Book of the Year. She's also written The Secret of a Heart Note, The Downstairs Girl, and now Luck of the Titanic. Her books have been selected for the Amelia Bloomer list for feminist fiction, as well as the Yalsa Best Fiction for Young Adults list, and the New York Public Library's Best Books for Teens. A native of Southern California and fourth-generation Chinese-American, she is a founder of the We Need Diverse Books movement and writes stories for all kids even the ones who look like adults, she notes. Welcome, Stacy. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. And Stacy, in preparing for this interview, I read an interview where you said that you're a pantser, which surprised me because I always think of writers who write historical novels as being planners by definition, that researching historical facts kind of makes them planners. And then in the interview, you also said that you were a pantser to your shame. <laughs> I think a lot of pantsers say that, and I say that as sort of a former pantser often. Uh, but I'm curious if you could tell us why, um, why that's to your shame, and then I'd love to hear if there are any benefits to being a pantser. Yeah, yeah. I am a pantser, and all the times I've tried to be a plotter, it's just never worked out. Um, I think I always start with the seed of an idea, for sure. I, I start with that seed, and I sort of know where I'm going to end up. And then the rest of the way is, uh, a, is on the journey for me, too. I'm trying to discover um, uh, the best path to get to the end, and sometimes the end changes as well. So... Um, I feel like for me, I need to be uh, open to the things that I learn along the way um, in researching things. And I've realized that so much can change depending on uh, what I uncover in the research. So I think that's why I haven't made more of a dedicated effort to be a plotter. I think it probably would have saved me time. Um, a lot of time because I end up sometimes going down roads I probably should not have taken. Um, for example, the downstairs girl, 
I went, it was a kind of a dark time when I was writing that book. It was 2016 and we all know what happened in 2016. So I feel like there was, um, there was a lot of dark energy in me and I started traveling down a path that I really, really, uh, shouldn't have gone because the book became more about another character instead of my main character and there was a trial and I did not mean for there to be a trial and it became hmm. like a legal thing. And, and then I really had to um, take a step back and say, is this a story that I originally set out to tell? It wasn't. Um, and so I ended up rewriting the book almost in its entirety. Hmm. So that happens. That's one of the dangers um, that probably could have been avoided if I had done a better job of plotting. But, you know, I also uh, chalk it up to experience. And I do feel like sometimes it's necessary to take those dark paths um, in order to find what it is that you really want to talk about. That's really interesting to hear you talk about that, Stacey, because <laughs> I just I feel like some people are so proudly one way or the other or staunchly defending of one way or the other, you uh, know, so I, I think this is kind of a unique perspective. And I, I definitely appreciate it. And maybe you'll try plotting next time. Who knows? Um, but one day, (laughs) you know, what? that's what every cancer says is one day, one day. (laughs) And does it happen? I don't know. I mean, all the times that I've tried, I, this is what I do. I figure out what I think I'm going to do. And as I'm writing, I, I keep track of where I'm going. So I sort of outline as I go, but the outline never happens beforehand. Hmm. You know, I do need some sort of roadmap to keep me on track. It's not just like all in my head. But but yeah, that's the extent of my outline. Well, let's talk about the book. I mean, obviously, our listeners and the entire world knows the story of the Titanic, which is where the story is set. But I would argue probably very few people know about the Chinese Exclusion Act, which plays such a significant role in your book. So as a way to introduce your novel, can you tell us about that and the role that that history had in inspiring your story and even changing your notions of the Titanic? Yes, um, the Chinese Exclusion Act uh, definitely was not something that I learned about in school either. Um, It's not in the history books. It's not in the lesson plans. Yet for over 60 years, it it actually, there was this law that excluded Chinese. Um, It was a law solely based on race uh, from coming into the United States. And it affected so much of our history here. So as a writer of historical fiction, if I'm writing about the Chinese, that is always going to play a role, you know, for better or worse. So when I learned that there were Chinese sailing on the Titanic, it came as a surprise to me because, well, you never hear about them, for one. You never hear about those stories. Um, but the Chinese Exclusion Act was the reason why you don't hear about them. They uh, were basically turned away when they reached New York and sent to Cuba, which was their original destination. They were sailors on their way to a new route in the Caribbean. And so unlike the other survivors who were just, you know, ushered into America and given relief and given aid after having survived this very traumatic event, they were just just shunted away because of these these laws. 
Um, and so I think I really wanted to share about that story. We don't know a lot about those men because um, in Chinese culture, there's an Asian culture, there's this this idea of shame. And shame is a really, really big part of uh, the culture in terms of, you know, it, it motivates so much of how we behave. Um, we want to avoid this shame. And sadly, the Chinese in the newspapers uh, written and all the accounts written after the Titanic sinking were not portrayed in a good light. They said that the Chinese were hiding under the seats or uh, dressing as women, and that's how they survived. And so that's like super embarrassing for us, but especially for Chinese back then. And so they did not even tell their families. And so really their stories um, were very, very hard to trace. There's a documentary um, about these men where they used a, a call out on social media to get the stories. Um, it's not yet available in the US and I haven't seen it. It just came out like two months ago, I think. So I'm very curious to see what they were able to discover, but uh, there's just not a lot of information about these men. So my story is inspired by them. It's definitely not the authentic and accurate story about these men, which I think will be interesting to find out how much they didn't, in fact, uncover about them. Wow, that's such an interesting story. It's amazing. And yeah, it wasn't part of my history at all. And I'm actually just learning most of this now. And one thing I think that's interesting about historical fiction is the way that it comments on or illustrates our present time. And that's certainly the case with your novel. And so I'm curious, even just to kind of go back to what you said about being a pantser and being open and finding the story. I'm also curious about whether you, you know, found that kind of illumination and commentary on our present time in the process of researching and writing the novel, or did you have that intention ahead of time and write with a kind of purpose in mind or a little bit of both? Well, I do feel like I am always looking for those uh, stories that fall into the cracks because I think it's important for people to get a, a whole picture of what's going on in the United States and um, the, for Chinese Americans that we were here for uh, uh, like since the 1500s, actually. And um, we really contributed to the fabric of this nation. And hearing things like this will hopefully put that into a larger perspective of, of the Chinese who were here historically. And so I'm always looking to do that. Um, for this story, I think that was important to me. This is just one example of the many ways that Chinese were refused entry into the country. But it's also sort of symbolic of the way a lot of third-class passengers were treated. And that's one of the things that's always focused on in the Titanic is the social class differences and so this is one example of that, that we never really hear about. I also learned a lot about um, the other people represented on the Titanic. There was actually a Japanese American. There was a Haitian man who uh, brought his family and so many others that you just don't hear about because, you know, the story is always focused on the wealthy versus mm -hmm. the poor and the, you know, maybe the Catholics versus the Protestants. Um, but not really on the, the on the racial stratification. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you watch the movie, it's like 
a sea of white people jumping off. There's like no attempt to try to even put one person of color in that story at all. Um, And this could easily be a historical novel for adults because it has such weighty historical aspects to it. So I'm wondering why you decided to write it for teens and what in general maybe makes you want to write for teens instead of adults. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that, well, this story and The Downstairs Girl are definitely um, written with adults and teens in mind, just largely based on the, the age of the protagonist. But I really gravitate towards young adult because I really like to, um, those years for me, the young adult years are so accessible in my mind. And I feel like I love exploring all those firsts that teenagers ex- you know, will experience and by the way, my my seventeen year old daughter just got her driver's license today. <laughs> that is <laughs> that is one of those firsts, and, I, and it just really reminded me of all the how I was feeling when I got my driver's license um, years and years and years ago. And I I, I always I feel like those experiences um, are always so interesting to me because you know we'll never experience them again in that way as adults. And I feel like there's such a rich mine of emotions um, that comes from finally going off on your own and finding that independence and learning to depend on your own and learning to find the people who you can connect with your family. Um, I, I love talking and writing about those issues. Well, you know, I, um, speaking of research, since you mentioned that earlier, Stacy, and so much research goes into a novel uh, like this, it's always interesting to me how fiction writers essentially become bona fide historians. You know, they have to put on a whole different hat with a whole different kind of training when they write historical fiction. And you're not just any fiction writer who does that like I do. And like, I just uh, thank God for Wikipedia, right? Because you're also a lawyer. And I'm just curious how that background in law has had an impact on your research or even your writing process. Uh, Because my dad was a lawyer and he always told me that, um, you know, a big part of being a lawyer is being, uh, you know, an interpreter of text and paying really close attention to text. Mm, Yeah, that's true. Um, Well, thank you for saying I'm like a historian. I'm always telling people that I'm not a historian, Grant. And I'm always like, (laughs) because I, it makes me nervous that, you know, someone's going to rely on my, my interpretation of um, events of the past, but I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm convincing somebody. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I, uh, I feel like um, your question was about being a lawyer and I do I do really appreciate having had that uh, law degree and having practiced um, because I think it, I think it really helps you become a cleaner writer Mm. in legal writing. Although it may not seem like it because when you look at a contract, there's so much like legal jargon, right? Right. But we are really taught to write like the facts and to be as clean as possible in arguments in legal briefs. And actually in law school, I remember being fined a quarter for every adverb or adjective that we used. (laughs) And uh, yeah, we're not allowed to really decorate our sentences. (laughs) So I, I, I do, I do thank law school for teaching me how to write um, very clean and tightly. I feel like, you know, after I learned how to do all that, then 
then I was ready to consider every adverb or adjective that came along, mm-hmm. like under a microscope, because I wanted, I always am conscious of, um, you know, not cluttering my writing too much uh, with pretty stuff. And so, and I think that has become sort of a defining characteristic of how I write. So I, I definitely thank law school for uh, my style of writing. Um, as far as being able to research, yeah, I think that there's definitely something to be said. We are uh, in the law library a lot researching stuff. And I think um, I think that has helped me not feel too intimidated by the research process. Um, I know, like I mentioned my daughter before, and she was trying her hand at historical fiction and she really just threw up her hands and said, no, I can't, this is too much research. No, I'm not interested, not interested in researching, but I think it's, it was really just the idea of so much data available and not knowing yet how to organize it. Um, that was, that was uh, challenging for her. So yeah, not being intimidated by the research process. It's clearly can be really overwhelming. Um, It's interesting that you have a 17 year old and I don't know if you have other children, but in thinking about the YA audience and, you know, this book brings to life so powerfully this forgotten part of history for many. And I was wondering if you have other YA historical fiction recommendations or if your daughter reads YA um, that, you know, and did it help your own development and do you two ever read stuff together? Oh, yeah. You know, um, I really love Elizabeth Wine, who wrote Codename Verity, and Cherie Smith wrote uh, Fly Girl and many other wonderful historical fiction books. Um, I love historical fiction. Um, My daughter doesn't love it as much as I do, but she Mm -hmm. is a big YA reader, and we have read many books together. Yes, I think she... uh, she really gravitates towards like the fantasy and all that sort of thing. And, and now she won't even look at YA because she's beyond that. Now she's like an adult reader. She tells me that I tell her she's going to come back to it one day, but you know, that's, that's the age I think. Well, Stacy, you've written uh, historical novels and contemporary novels. Are you working on another historical novel? Yeah, I am writing another historical. Absolutely. Mm. That's something I um, I think I I enjoy doing. I didn't think I was going to do that, Grant. When I was a, a student, I, I really did not think historical fiction would be my jam at all because I hated history. I really just fell asleep in history and didn't hate it, just was bored by it. Um, but mm. I, think, um, I think it's because history... As when I was learning, it was really just wars and dates to memorize, and mm-hmm. that was just not interesting. So I found um, it so happened my first book was historical fiction, and I found that I kind of like doing that. So um, that's what I'm doing now. Um, I do have uh, a middle grade debut coming out next year, mm. which is fantasy, and it's with Rick Reardon presents. And it's, oh, cool. uh, yeah, a nice, it's a fun departure from the more serious <laughs> writing I've been doing. I get to use some body humor, which is always a delight. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to the debut of that because it'll be uh, different readers. And um, I love the energy that middle graders bring. 
Yeah. Do you have a topic for your next historical novel? I'm just curious. Um, yeah. I I can tell you that it will probably be set in Los Angeles, old Chinatown in the Depression era. That sounds fascinating. Can't wait for it. Thanks. Thank you for joining us, Stacy. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, such a pleasure, Stacy. Thanks so much. We'll be right back with today's book talk. Welcome back, everybody. And my selection for this week's book pick is the winner of the National Book Award in 2020 for fiction, Interior Chinatown. And it's by Charles Yu, who was a screenwriter on Westworld, one of my favorite shows on Netflix of wonderful, I guess it's sci-fi fantasy. I'm not even sure what it's categorized as. It's just a good story. But among other things, uh, the novel is a Hollywood satire, and it's written in the form of a Hollywood screenplay, interestingly enough. Uh, it's even published in Courier font which is the requirement for all screenplays and the dialogue you know sits in the middle of the page with wide margin and centered character names so you get this flavor of reading a script but part of the reason for the form of the novel is that the novel deals with racial stereotypes so the main character willis Wu, is cast as generic asian man in the script and he wants to become more than a bit player just to read a quote from the book, he says, ever since you were a boy, you've dreamt of being Kung Fu guy. And he tells himself this over and over in the novel, which is kind of like a mantra for success to kind of raise himself up the ladder of uh, different racial stereotypes, actually. And it's not easy. For the past century or so, you know, American movies and televisions ha have relegated Asian characters and actors to the margins with few exceptions. So he's, he's kind of stuck as generic Asian man, and he only gets to speak a few words as delivery guy in the script. So it really, it's, it's really funny, uh, but also really biting, really biting satire. And one thing that makes the novel so good is Charles Yu's amazing characterization. And it's, it's the perfect way to make the point for a deep and rich characterization and humanity to the characters. You know, it really stands out against those stereotypes that are being critiqued. So definitely recommend this novel. There's a reason it won the National Book Award in 2020. That sounds amazing, Grant. Thanks for putting that on our radar. And to all of you, we have a favor to ask. If you all remember, we had a goal at the beginning of the year to get 500 ratings. We have 337. So we're totally not there. We're coming up on the end of this season as we reach into the summer months. So all you really have to do is go to your phone, tap to rate, give us some stars, help us get a little bit closer to that goal. We will appreciate it so, so much. We're here every single week for you. So looking forward to next week and the week after that too. Thank you so much for being our listeners. <laughs>